and welcome to Inside the Pressure Cooker, where cooks and chefs share their stories of life inside the kitchen. I remember there was a guy that didn't show up on a Friday night to work online. And, uh, you know, I'd been washing dishes there for about uh, almost a year and a half or so. And this, uh, they looked at me and they said, do you want to learn how to cook tonight on do the grill on the flat top? That's where the magic started. And once I survived that night, it was a Friday night too. And we had a football game and our stadium was right next, like a mile from our our restaurant, it was called Hammond's Corners Grill. And uh, I survived that night. And that's Chef Patrick Stark talking about that bug, uh, that shot of adrenaline um, that got him hooked on the restaurants. That the moment where he realized that this was where he wanted to be. This is where he belonged. And... Um, it's, it's a very familiar story to a lot of us um, where we finally found that family and that sense of belonging and we just knew. Um, some people took a little bit longer. Some lived in some denial. Some of you lived in denial, I should say. But we all have that very, very similar feeling of just knowing. And... Uh, Patrick Stark and I uh, had a lot of fun on this podcast. We did cover quite a bit about him. He's got a really fun background, um, has done some TV appearances. Well, he touched a little bit about his TV uh, experiences, and while he'll never do that again. Um, and then we also get into some fun discussions about the future of food. Um, we will definitely be taking that into a second series, if you will. Um, because that's a whole another can of worms uh, to get into uh, when, when we start talking about the world of AI and robotics and genetically modified foods and where the state of our food supply, the state of our restaurant world and industry and where it's headed. Um, it's... Call us, uh, call us cons- conspiracy theorists. Whether it's a conspiracy theory or it's a reality, uh, or you just think it's full of shit, um, there's there's a lot of truth uh, to be discussed. Um, hopefully, our readings into some of that are wrong, but uh, we'll talk about it in future episodes. So keep an eye out for those. So let's go ahead and kick this off, man. So who who is Chef Patrick Stark? I mean, someone's going to go through this. Who who are you? Oh man, that's a good question. My mom would probably say I'm from outer space, but I was uh, born in Akron, <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> um, graduated uh, about a year early from high school and decided that uh, you know my calling was going to be the the culinary arts profession, and uh, since then. I went to the Culinary Institute of America. I've been blessed with getting a uh, bachelor's in business, associates in culinary arts. From there, um, have dabbled in um, running restaurants, consulting restaurants. And as of late, uh, now that I'm newly married, and that's unfortunate for my wife, joke, but um, (laughs) um, I've also become an educator. And started getting more on the educational side, 
um, and avid musician, uh, also a philanthropist, and uh, enjoy helping and giving back. And uh, that's that's kind of it on the the PG level, I guess you could say. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, is that it? I mean, it doesn't seem like you got enough balls in the air right now. Uh, dude, I mean, I guess that's subjective, <laughs> like food and music and art. Um, I right. feel like sometimes we forget to breathe, man, you know? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I understand that. I mean, there's something about, I think, chefs and cooks. And when you get into that passion, you know, people that are following that passion, they get into something and it's it becomes their life and it's like the only thing they know. And it's just, you can just kind of keep loading up on that. So you're absolutely but, right. I mean, like, you know, what really drew me, I was obviously able to graduate high school early. I was very smart. I could have been a doctor. I could have been a lawyer. I could have done all the things my parents told me I probably should have done, but there was this calling and it was, you know, the culinary arts. I started off as a busser. Uh, I, I quit that job because the owner at that time, I think I was, and I'm not lying on this. I was, I think I was 12 years old and the owner was a drunk and told me to turn off a, a light switch. And there was 20 light switches on that wall. And I hit the, the light switch that was a light over the painting of his father. And uh, I used to carry around this dark coffee mug all the time. And everybody always wondered what was in that mug. And, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. It was probably Jack Daniels. But, uh, you know, that was my first taste of, like, realizing um, that I enjoyed restaurants, even busing tables. But I also knew there was an element of, you know, you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. And this guy clearly wasn't... Uh, somebody I needed to be around. So I ran out the door in tears at 12 and called my dad and he picked me up and he goes, you know, you don't ever have to go back there. And the next day I went right next door to this little restaurant. And that's where I truly fell. I started washing dishes. I wasn't busing anymore. But at that time, uh, the head chef there, his name is Charlie Thomas. I consider him one of my mentors. Uh, I think he's he's now running a, a, a food and a microbrewery in Strongsville, Ohio. But uh, he was the one that developed me. I remember there was a guy that didn't show up on a Friday night to work online. And, uh, you know, I'd been washing dishes there for about uh, almost a year and a half or so. And this uh, they looked at me and they said, do you want to learn how to cook tonight on do the grill on the flat top? And I said, you know, as long as you don't yell at me and you could tell it was still ingrained from that guy that ripped my head off of my shoulders for hitting a wrong light switch in a hallway. That was obviously the guy was uh, an alcoholic, but, um, you know, that's where the magic started. And once I survived that night, it was a Friday night too. And we had a football game and our stadium was right next, like a mile from our, our restaurant. It was called Hammond's Corners Grill. And uh, I survived that night. And I remember going to finishing up that night and there was so much camaraderie. And, uh, you know, I'm underage and can't drive. And these guys were older and we just started to get this 
vibe of like, this is cool. I'm listening to music. I'm not sitting at a desk. Um, these guys are taking me to my first heavy metal concerts and, uh, it inspired me and touched me so much that at that point, when I went home and told my dad, who's a retired public school teacher, Hey, I want to graduate a year early. Uh, he, at that point, uh, said, you know what, if that's what you want to do. Uh, you can graduate a year early, but you're not going to take a year off from school. You're going to go into something. And that was probably the best advice I ever got because I know if I would have stayed in my hometown and I wasn't focused in doing something, I knew I would have ended up in a very, very bad place. So right. um, just, yeah, it was like a drug, huh? Oh man. Like, like nothing I'd ever seen. So then, uh, you know, I'm in Akron, Ohio at the time. And that was probably more in my parents' price range was going to the Pika school or Pittsburgh Institute of Culinary Arts. And, uh, my dad was like, you know what? There's also Johnny Wu or Johnson and Wales up in Rhode Island. And he's like, there's this place called the CIA. And our plan was, to go to Pika first. And then if we didn't like Pika, we were going to go up to CIA. Well, Charlie, the head chef at Hammond's Corners, he was an alumna or alumnus of uh, the CIA. And he's the one that told me about the school. And he ended up, sorry about that alarm. We're chefs. There's always okay. alarms going on. But, uh, you know, he was the one at that point that said, hey, man, if this is really what you want to do, I'd be more than glad to write your recommendation, which is needed. You also had to have experience. And then you obviously had to be able to to, to float the bill to go to CIA. But uh, my dad surprised me. We drove past Pika. We went straight to the CIA. And we had uh, lunch in the Escoffier room. And I tell my students this even today. And uh, since I've been up at, at my college here, we've been now starting to heavily recruit from the high schools that are around our um, college campus because I nostalgic nostalgically went back to that moment. And I tell my students this when they're in that uh, restaurant class, it's the capstone here. And uh, I tell them, I'm like, man, when I was in high school, I can tell you the same. I can tell you what I had. I can tell you where I sat in the restaurant with my dad. And it left such an impression on me that when we left CIA, we didn't even stop by Pika or Pittsburgh Institute Culinary Arts on the way home. It was it. We were like, we're going to go. My dad was like, this is, you know, going to cost you a lot of money. And this is kind of probably the other nugget of my dad's taught me a lot of great things, but this was the other big thing he told me. He goes, this is a hard industry, Patrick. He goes, there's a lot of abuse. There's a lot of drugs. There's suicide. There's crime, alcoholism. Like you can keep the list going on. And he goes, a lot of people fall out of love with this profession. So do this. If you're going to go into this, at least go and get your bachelor's degree as well. This way, if you ever come into terms with, you know, issues with life or anything else that's going on and you have to pivot or change, at least you're not painted into a corner. You can go into anything with a business degree. And man, if he wasn't right as rain, man, it, it was the that's best smart. advice I ever got. And how many times in the last since I've graduated that I've had to pivot? 
and I've had to utilize that safety net of using a bachelor's degree to make it through a tough time or, you know, transition into something like if COVID hits, you know, that's another example is just like, you know, I had no intentions of becoming an educator and it's probably the best thing that's ever happened. Uh, one of the best things that's ever happened, I should say, but I wouldn't have been able to even get this job if I didn't have drum roll, please a bachelor's degree. And it's just uncanny. So anybody that's listening to your podcast, I can't recommend it enough to go and get a business degree. If you do have an associates or some kind of a certificate uh, in culinary arts. No, absolutely. I mean, that's, I, I don't want to say, I think the CIA is the only one that offers a bachelor's program. You are correct. Uh, Johnny, who am I doing now? Um, I was the second group to ever go through that CIA program. And um, that was in 2000. I'm an old man now. So this is 22 years ago. Um, But it was, it was exactly what I needed. Uh, The benefit also was being able to develop a business plan. And, uh, you know, one of my offshoots using this bachelor's degree, and I know you do this all the time as well, um, and you're fantastic at this, is, is being a consultant. And, you know, if you work this industry the right way and you gather experience and you work under decorated guys or even just guys that really work hard, that set good um, examples or environments for you to learn in, uh, that's value. And you'd be surprised the number of people that need somebody's expertise. Um, yeah. And that's where consulting, and that's another arm of this industry that as your knees and arms and stress and responsibilities grow and your, you know, things are changing personally in your life, you know, this is where consulting can be a really valuable opportunity. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can sling pans and be the best at it all day long, but if you can't write the playbook and make it all come together <clears throat> and make it make money, mm-hmm. then you're you're going to be a line cook for the rest of your life. And that's interesting. <clears throat> Being in post-secondary or, or college here, I'm with Dallas College, a professor now going into my fourth year. Jeez. Um What's been really interesting is that the students that go through the program that uh, I like to call them a one trick pony, they all that they think that they need to do is cook. And um, I when I tell them that cooking is 90 percent organization and 10 percent execution or perspiration, their mouths drop open. They're like, well, I'm like, man, if you've been watching Food Network too long. Those guys in Iron Chef don't run down there and just look at each other and say, okay, I'm going to go make this and you make this, or they don't even, you don't even see them talking. So there's an air of mystique and baloney, I should really say, not even mystique, but really it's baloney on how they paint what we do. And, you know, I tell uh, my students this, the difference between a cook and a chef is these three things. And if you can't do these three things, it should answer whether you're a chef or a cook. A chef needs to be able to make the right amount of food. That chef needs to be able to deliver it on time. And that chef also needs to be able to tell you what the cost of one plate is 
and what selling price they need to sell it to their customer to protect their food cost goal. And then I'll ask him, I'm like, can you do all three of those things? And all of a sudden you can hear the air going out of the tires in these kids that think that all of a sudden, like, this is what it is. I just walk in and make beautiful food and that, you know, it's all just off the top of your head and you just run around and use fire and knives and it's completely opposite. And the guys yeah, that honestly very successful are the ones that are the most organized. You know, you're thinking yeah. through your actions before you're actually doing them. And, you know, the number of restaurants you've opened up, you can attest to that as well, is that, you know, if, if you didn't do any research and development or R&D or you didn't cost these or you didn't figure out how long it takes to make 40 gallons of red sauce or any of these other things, a red sauce being like a tomato or marinara or whatever, sure. um, you know, how are you going to sit there and figure out when your staff needs to come in and what time they need to go and how much can you pay them per hour and what does that cost? I mean, you know, that's the probably the most rewarding thing that I'm doing right now in my position is just the ability to really recalibrate the expectations of young culinarians going into this industry that just watch too much Food Network TV. <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah, oh, I'm a little conflicted on on my uh, thoughts on the Food Network. You know, it's it's done a lot of good for the industry, um, but on the same time, it's created such a false image, um, and so it's just it, it is not. You know, life in the kitchen is not Food Network. Nope. So, and there's, there's been no so many people that got into the industry because of the food network that I'm sorry, they just don't belong in it, you know? And it's, it's been a really, really rough awakening for a lot of them because it's like, uh, you know, Oh, I just, I love watching this and I enjoy cooking at home. And it's like, well, you'll never enjoy cooking at home again because you probably never will. Yeah. Cause you'll be too tired <laughs> so, and you'll grab the mixed frozen yeah. mixed vegetables and put a pat of butter on there and microwave it because that's about as much energy as you have at the end of the day to feed yourself. Yeah, um, yeah man, that's, just that's, the mental energy. Yeah, and even you talking about the food network like you are right now, it made me bring this up too, and this can be valuable, and a lot of people don't realize this, is that you know uh, when Food Network was really blossoming, I had an opportunity to go on a handful of shows. And once That's the producers right. liked you on those shows, uh, I was on ABC's The Taste Season 2. I was on Cutthroat Kitchen twice. I was on Mystery Diners. I was on uh, Rewrapped with Joey Fatone, the lead singer, and one of my childhood idols, Mark Summers from Double Dare. That show was probably my favorite. Um, but when you go nice. on to these shows, you're, you're, you're showing up and nobody tells anybody this stuff. And that's the fact that it's exciting. You're thinking to yourself, man, somebody wants me to come on this show and I'm going to make my name and this is going to be my big break. But what they don't tell you is, is that the only reason people watch shows is, or the shows that do well have good ratings. And the only thing that gets ratings is creating drama and what i'm mm -hmm. itching and scratching at on this is is every single show i was on nobody told me that there was a premeditative agenda like they already knew how these shows for the most part are gonna end who's gonna win how they're gonna twist the wires 
And I think it was one of my last shows. I came downstairs. I won't say which show it was, but the producer came down and they're like, we absolutely love you trying to do a foreign accent. Can't do it very well, but you know, <laughs> she comes down and she's like, oh, we absolutely loved you and you're this and that. And I turned around and I looked at her and I said, with all due respect, I'm tired of you guys sitting there painting me to either be a villain or doing something that uh, votes you off of, you know, the show that's not within the realm of my uh, skill or techniques mm-hmm. or training. And at that moment, I remember I was in Burbank and um, we started taping at like five in the morning. It was like two thirty in the afternoon and the limo pulled up and they're like, Hey, we can take you back. And I was like, no, I need to blow off some steam. And I just walked probably like 15 blocks through Burbank, old school Burbank back to my hotel. And I was just thinking about this. I'm like, this was supposed to be like some of the most magical experiences. This was supposed to be my big break. And I don't even have control over what I'm doing on these shows really honestly because of one word editing. Uh-huh. And yeah. You want to talk about air being let out of a balloon or a tire. So all my students, you know, I encourage them, have fun, go do those, try your best. But there's a lot of things that you could be doing right now that's competition that's not going to make you out possibly to be less than you really are. Like uh, I, I do a lot with Skills USA. Um, I also work with ProStart, and these are high school and post-secondary competitions where you know, if you do want to go on those shows or you do want to develop and really have a good sense of organization and time management, you can go do these and they'll actually open up doors for you too versus rolling the dice, flying out to some studio where you're going to sweat like a chicken McNugget under a heat lamp and hope that somebody's not going to paint you to be a fool. Yeah. Sorry well, for funny anybody you said that. out there that doesn't like that, but it's the honest to God truth. And I was fortunate to get out with my reputation intact for the most part. Uh, you know, there's some that didn't. Yeah. There's, there, you know, I, I know uh, three or four chefs personally that have gone through uh, Top Chef. They've been on Top Chef and they've all said the exact same thing. The exact same thing. It messes you know, one with of them. Head. Absolutely hated it. Is she? They could not wait to get kicked off, or just you know voted out, or whatever it was at the time. Because she was so tired of all the bullshit. I think I know who you're talking like, about. I won't say her name, but yeah, I, I I have a good idea. Oh, they'll flip yeah. the rules on you. So when I was out yeah. in Universal Studio City, I was there for six months when we were rolling out a new menu back at the restaurant I was at was Sundown at Granada on Greenville Avenue, um, which I was grateful to, to be at the helm of that for a good solid three and a half, three and a half, three years. Um, and uh, while I was out there, that was the same studio they sh- they cut American Idol on. And you, I'm telling you, these were the hottest lights I'd ever been anywhere, like just the temperature inside they had AC blowing, but it was just like a hundred degrees. Well, anyways, you can, if you put a plate of food out at a hundred degrees, how do you think it's going to look in 20 minutes? 
So then it came into this where it was like, oh, we're going to take photos of your food right when it's done. And uh, if the judges, because they're tasting like 200 different people's foods, you know, you're in a queue. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, it won't affect anything on your outcome. And half the people, not it wasn't mine included. I pivoted. I completely changed my whole dish and I shouldn't have. I should have rolled with what I had initially, but I was worried about it sitting out. And uh, right as rain, I'm sitting back in the lobby and here comes in one of the contestants in tears. And she's like, yeah, they told me that my fried oyster, uh, the breading was soggy. She's like, it was sitting there for probably a good two or three hours. She's like, this is baloney. This isn't fair. And I'm just like, wow, you know, how can you sit there and tell somebody the rules are one thing and then punk you in front of gosh knows how many hundreds of millions of people so that when you go home, you're going to be known as the oyster with the soggy breading, (laughs) you know? And it's just like, it's such a manipulative trap. It looks so awesome and inviting and man, I want to be on TV. And then you get in there, like you were saying, like all these other people on Top Chef, they're like, man, I I just want to go home. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very, I think it's great information that people, more people need to know about, um, for sure. Man. Well, so let's pivot a little bit. Let's get off sure. of TV. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you had some cool experiences on that and I forgot that about that on that chopped, um, and some of those other ones that, I mean, my wife tried to push me to, uh, get into some of that TV stuff. And I was like, man, I I'm just using me. I, in my heart, I'm a cook. Like, I'm just a cook. Like, I don't want the spotlight because I got into cooking before I think the Food Network was really a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and, and so that's that wasn't what got me into the industry. Um, you know, I, I've got my own little story behind that. And, um, and so, yeah, I it was, it, it's all that stuff came up. I was like, no, I am. I am more than comfortable just hanging out in the trenches, just slinging pans, doing my thing and, and running restaurants. I'm like, that's, that's all the spotlight I need. Um, but you know, for, for everybody else that's going for it Hey, you know, you do your thing, you could go for it, but that's just, it was never, for me, it was never in my cards and I, I'm glad I never got into it because I do not have any tolerance for bullshit like that. Oh, you would have lost your marbles, bro. You, if you oh. were great shows with me, I would have looked over and you would have been steam coming out of your ears. Oh, man. It yeah. was... I don't doubt that at all. <laughs> I would have been kicked off right away just so they didn't have to deal with my shit. So. Yeah. In one particular <laughs> show, one of the stagehands, one of the camera guys on the floor told me that after or towards the end of the taping that I set the record for the most times for infractions or when they have to tell you to freeze, stop and put your hands up in the air. Cause they were telling me blatantly to, I'm not going to get started in it, but I thought that was funny. Um, I was like, man, I guess I really should have thought about this twice uh, before doing that. Say la vie though. Right. Can't do it yeah. Either. Right. <laughs> Well, so, all right, CIA, right? Kind of we're, we'll pivot back a little bit to kind of tell through some of these stories. You know, you get through the CIA, you got your bachelor's, which really is brilliant. I mean, your dad sounds like he's giving you a ton of great advice. Um, 
you know, and in some ways it almost feels like your family's kind of influenced you in a lot of ways, getting you back into, you know, some teaching. I guess there's going to be some, some of that in your blood a little bit. Um, but you're also doing, um, kind of some online courses as well, right? I, I absolutely am. Um, you know, I, I never, when I first started off, ever thought I would end up being in education. And there's a stigma, and I'll, I'll touch, scratch on this really quickly, is that there's a stigma that if you go into teaching, it's where chefs go to die and or retire or whatever you want to metaphorically kind of spin it as. And, uh, you know, it's not that at all. Um, for me personally, it was a new challenge to be able to see if I could influence the next generation and if I could take everything that I learned and integrate that into helping somebody else's future, um, was the really the most fascinating, best feeling. Obviously, teachers don't do this here for the money, but, um, I, you know, there's been some talk, and like, hey, would you ever go into administration? And I'm like, absolutely not. The magic is always with the kids and or the students. Some of them are older than I am, but um, it's, 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 it's magical. And people, when they're saying, well, that sounds silly, it's magical. Until you teach somebody and you watch them go do which you just spent time teaching them and watch them do it and look in their eyes and see, you know, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal experience. I can't say anything less. So when I was in this uh, realm of teaching and my parents are retired public school teachers, my dad's actually in the uh, public teachers hall of fame in Ohio. Uh, I was working in Mexico for three years before I came back to the States and I had gotten a letter that he had gotten this award and they were going to be honoring him. So I flew home from Mexico and that was the only time I'd ever been home to my high school area, which was kind of eerie in a way. But, um, I could always tell I enjoyed helping people. And when I started, uh, working at Dallas college here and they gave me the restaurant or the last class before they go to graduate, uh, like we were saying at the beginning of this awesome podcast, like they're just the number of kids that came in that thought they were ready to graduate, but couldn't answer the three questions of, you know, can you make the right amount of food? Can you deliver it on time? And can you cost it and tell me what the selling price, the math was just alarming that none of these kids were strong enough in this math and worse off thought that they really were all that in a bag of chips. So that's what influenced me to go in and take probably one of the most awful, tedious, terrible concepts, which is culinary math and costing. You tell any student or ask anybody that's going to do this for their career, how do you like that? And the eyes roll in the back of the head. They're like, oh my God, this is terrible. So um, it influenced me to uh, create a course called Culinary Math Murder Mystery. And there's no violence in it. And it's suitable for all ages. Um, but what you're trying to do is, in essence, discover who culinary math is or what culinary math is to save your future as a culinarian. And that's where the rub of murder comes into the 
to the to the idea of it. But um, I noticed that you know when we went to school, man, and we were looking at books like you had to memorize terms to understand terms to be able to do it, and it was very overwhelming. And the I book of yields. Oh yeah, we still have the book of yields. Yep. So. <laughs> I, I created this course where, um, you know, you could follow along with me and I encourage you to do the work. And, um, I had started this project way before I got into teaching. I was using it a lot in my consulting, uh, owners that had no restaurant experience that were wanting to get into this business. And I was like, listen, if you don't have a good grasp on fractions and percentages, you don't know weights and units and, different measurement systems, like it really behoove you to be able to get your feet wet. So you, when you do have to work with your executive chef or kitchen manager, or whomever GM, you understand the lingo and you can also help assist versus just sit there and point at your bottom line and say, why aren't we making more money? Cause there's a science. And, um, so far, um, man, I, I lost count of how many students, but I strategically picked a handful of students. And when I came up with this um, course, I, I used them, I guess, in a way like a guinea pig. And I tested it out. And um, the results that I came back from watching them do this, and they did it 100% on their own. I had no help. I had no help helping them. I just said, hey, you need to watch these videos, especially this one, this one, and this one, and go back and start doing your costing. Start and stop this video as you need to. Rewind it 10 times if you're like me and need to hear it more. But I was seeing kids scoring 100% on their costing. And in the restaurant here, what's kind of cool is that I made it like a business plan where you have to research your menu, looking at digital uh, and traditional um, indigenous ingredients and traditional recipes. You had to look at seasonality, but also through it, you had to cost it and you had to take a recipe and scale it to make a hundred servings. So again, with profits being so slim and, uh, you know, uh, God, I'm getting slimmer by the day. Yeah. I mean, on average it's three to 12% profits. And when I tell my students, I'm like, so take it this way. You just did a hundred thousand in food sales for the month. If you're running a loose operation, what's 3% of a hundred thousand? They're like three grand. I'm like, so you're only going to make 3000 profit on a hundred thousand. If that's where your goal is now, I've seen it up to 12% in some places. I've seen it hang between three and five in some places. It's, it just depends on the operation, but that's why this course I'm finding is very beneficial because I'm taking it in an approach where it's not like a textbook and it's very much geared towards what people are going to see when they go out into the real industry and not making it like, Hey, I memorized this formula, but I don't understand why I just memorized the formula. Like, let's get away from that. Let's get into uh, real talk. And um, it's been really neat and fantastic to watch the, the, the students succeed for sure. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. Culinary math, murder mystery. Well, we'll uh, for those listening, we'll put the link to that in the, the notes down below. Um, awesome. I, I play but, a detective, uh, so I call it edutainment. Yeah, I say it's fun. I, I've it's, watched a few of those episodes you get up on YouTube. It's, it's fun to watch. You did a great job with that. Thank you, chef. 
So yeah, ed, edutainment. Um, well, because in so many ways you kind of have to, because, oh man, I've as many restaurants as I've built from the ground up and some of the consulting I've done, man, doing the math is probably the, the least, the least amount of fun. And every time I'm always trying to create spreadsheets and ways to take some of the, the pain out of it. But I've also tried to do that so I could get it to be a little bit more, God, what do you want to call it? Um, easier to, yeah, just, you know, be able to look at it because sometimes when you're looking at numbers and all that stuff, it's like, you're staring into the matrix and you're just like, (laughs) I I see numbers, but like, what does this all mean? And it takes time before all of a sudden it just, it starts telling you that story. Um, and, and so it's just, uh, yeah, that's, it's definitely a very under taught skill for a lot of people. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, um, to put myself in a lot of students' shoes and feel for them, because a lot of the courses, when I go to other colleges and I'm listening to what they're doing, if there's something new, you know, nobody's, uh, nobody's really showing anything new. I went on a Facebook page and uh, it's for teachers and educators from grade six to grade 12. And then I'm on another one for college. And I just, out of the blue, wrote on there, I was like, how many people uh, need help teaching or a teacher's aid with convert co- a recipe conversion and recipe costing? And I didn't put a link to my course. I wasn't trying to sell anything. And the response of comments within one day was like over 150 different educators. And I'm like, wow, wow, this is, I I'd always knew in my bones, like it was an issue, right. but to see it now coming from other people opened my eyes even more. Um, so, you know, the other demand I get a lot is people that want to do food trucks or they want to do startup businesses. So I'm doing a, a part two in this series. We're going to shoot it. Uh, my friend out in Orange County, his name is Patrick Rivera. Uh, like the old pork uh, ads, I'm the other white meat. It's a joke because <laughs> um, there's two pats. I'm the other white meat. Um, but uh, And he's a Latin gentleman, so it works even better when I say I'm the other white meat. But um he flew out and we're going to be shooting the the second part of it called the autopsy files. And, um, that's going to go over inventory profit and loss and, uh, restaurant startup. And I don't proclaim to, you know, be able to tell you that by the time you take this course, you're going to be, uh, ready to go invest millions of dollars of your money, but it's done in a way again, where you, it's done and painted in a balance more of a real world to book versus currently everything's just a book and giving them a spreadsheet. Like you were talking about something that's going to help lessen uh, their loads. Uh, Also creating something that, you know, can have you keep up your numbers and tell your owners. Cause that was how I originally first created this document like 15 years ago. I'd have an owner come in all the time and he's like, just always harping, asking questions, man, we're spending too much, man. Why is there people here on the clock? Why is this going on here and there? Well, when I created this Google doc, 
I can invite it to him. He couldn't edit it, but he could view it. And at any given moment on any day of the month, he could go in and look at the profitability on the restaurant. The sales came from the Aloha. The labor came from the Aloha. We entered in all of our invoices. Obviously, inventory plays a part at the end of it. But, you know, you can't really jack with numbers. Numbers don't lie unless you're putting in false ones. And that's where I'm really excited because I think that, yes, you need to learn how to do recipe conversion and costing before you can get into a profit and loss or inventory. So they kind of work like a building block set. And um, I'm looking forward, you know, an autopsy is a reflection on why something happened. And really your profit and loss statement is a reflection of how you performed for the last week or month or depending on the period of time. So I'm thinking that that's going to really be helpful to a lot of people that are going out and maybe not investing in a brick and mortar, but maybe more in like a food truck. My buddy builds them out. It's called uh, Country Boy Food Trucks up in McKinney, Texas. And uh, his name's Adam Tucker and does really great work. Um, but the number of people uh, he sends me all the time, he's like, man, these people are ready to buy, but they're scared because they got grandma's meatloaf recipe, but they don't know how to operate and run a food truck. They don't know anything. So I'm like, hey, send them my way. Get this all figured out. And that's where your profit and loss comes in. You know, if you don't have goals set and an idea of what you should be spending in food or labor or what your targeted sales is, it gets overwhelming, as you know, you know, and definitely anybody that's opening or starting a restaurant, I highly implore them to hire a unbiased third party, like a consultant to make sure that it's just not your opinion versus your wife or your partners, then neither one of you have enough experience to, you know, find your way out of a wet paper bag, I guess, you know, um, I remember when I was doing something at all. Oh, dude, absolutely. So at sundown, what were you saying? Oh, uh, I had the legendary chef Mark castle. Uh, he was down at the original green room in deep Ellum. And I remember having just a lot of head bunny with the owners, you know, it's like, man, I really think we should be going this route. The owners would say, no, we want to do this. And we're the ones with the money. And I was the best advice I ever got was, and I, I maybe, maybe uh, the owner suggested it, or maybe it was me or whomever, but it, 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 it made our relationship stronger and better by using an unbiased third party that has tons of experience and it really made the most of not only the restaurant being successful, but to having a good communicative relationship and not building resentment, um, and separation and distance, which happens so often as we know, um, when you start up places, the honeymoon wears off and all of a sudden it's the guy holding the bag of bills and the money. And then there's the laborer, which is us. And smiles and high fives and being able to enjoy the same beer only goes so far before it's like time to put up or shut up. <laughs> As you know. Hey, yeah. And hey, let's backtrack real quick a little bit. Talking about uh, some of the math and the scaling and all that stuff. It, it kind of hit me and I wrote it down my notes. But when it comes to writing recipes and uh, 
so later on in my career, I actually started writing everything more in the metric system, mm. right? Everything was by weights because it was actually scalable and being able to cost recipes. Oh my God. So much easier, right? Absolutely. Because it was, you know, I mean, when you go to start scaling some of that stuff, when it's all done by, by weight, um, or more of that metric side of things, the simplicity is, uh, oh, I don't know how to, how else to say that, but I started. Standard is a nightmare, dude. Absolutely. And, um, and so I had one restaurant I did that at and, uh, your boy, Danny Bays went through and converted everything back. Oh no. And I was like, all right, well, your kitchen right now, go for it. And, uh, but it was, you know, at that point though, the costing was done. Everything was there. And, uh, but I was just, I've always been, uh, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, what do you guys teach right now? So that's a great point. Me working internationally, you want to talk about fish out of water going from standard down to metric in Mexico. That's all everybody uses. And then once you get a little further down, you realize that they'd really figure out their own methods for units, like four scoops of a red solo cup versus weighing it or anything like, man, that was a whole different eye opening experience. But back to your question, you know, up here at school, because we're in the United States and the majority of our employers are using a standard system, which is, you know, um, fluid ounces and weight ounces and pounds and gallons and cups and pints and all that. That's what we are pretty much showcasing because that's what the majority of the operations around our school are utilizing. I do, and even in the course, I show you both metric standard and uh, there's even Imperial I touch on, which is up in Canada, very similar to standard, except their, their, their volume units are a little bit different. Um, gets really weird and confusing, but overall, and it's so interesting you said this because, you know, if, if it all came down to accuracy, weight never lies. And if you look at baking and pastry, it's an exact science. It's yep. all done by weight. It's very little by measuring and volume. I mean, some of it you can find, but, you know, Savory's always had an opportunity or, yeah, an opportunity to be able to season a little bit more or adjust things or eyeball things, whereas in baking and pastry, you can't. But now after, you know, teaching for three or four years, if I had a way to do over everything that I'm doing right now, um, I would be wanting to teach my students more of the, the metric side and just doing it all by weight instead of, I mean, even on metric, you have milliliters and grams and stuff, but a lot of the recipes you get, even if they are milliliters, they'll do them by weight. Everything's by weight. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, it's definitely more exact. The only hindrance uh, you know, we see it all the time, like in memes on social media and whatnot, but, you know, everyone's always just saying, why don't we just get rid of standard 
measurement system. I mean, you think about everything the United States has ever done, we've always done it our own way and made it difficult against everybody else in the world and wants the rest of the world to all act like what we do. And it's just a perfect example of we screwed up, the United States screwed up on <laughs> pushing standard system versus metric. But at my school, to answer your long, answer your question in a long-winded verse, um, because of our employers, we do focus on using the standard system. But I do let a lot of my uh, foreign exchange students or anybody that's just a metric person to go ahead and do it. Uh, all in metric. In our Pro Chef book that we use, you'll notice it's all in standard and metric. So um, I think that's a great question. What do you think about it? Um, well, I mean, growing up in the, this industry is everything I knew was standard, right? You know, for mm -hmm. the longest time, nobody really talked about kind of the metric system um, until we started seeing a lot more, man, uh, when I started collecting cookbooks that were um, more written for the European world. Um, you know, and just kind of having to go through it and look at that. And the more science became involved in, in cooking. Um, when I say the science of cooking, it's like the, man, I don't want to call it the molecular stuff, but like, you know, the worlds of like Alinea and where even though they're, it is the savory side of things, their precision had to be a lot more. And mm -hmm. so that was kind of what started to expose me to it. Um, I never did any of that style of cooking, um, but that was kind of that first exposure. And then from there, um, I want to say, where else did I see it? And I just, over time, it just kind of started, it kept kind of appearing. And, I, and then I was like, you know what, what happens if I start doing it like this? And I started just writing recipes and converting them and um, in... Honestly, when you start with a recipe and creating recipes and you start in the metric and don't have to worry about conversions, man, especially in the R&D process, you know, for me at the time, I mean, I was building, you know, one restaurant a year, brand new concepts. If not right? more. Each one. I mean, that was, I was literally recreating the wheel every year and, um, and so by doing it in a standard format was just a beating because we would go through and we'd create hundreds of these recipes. And it's like, we like this, we like this and the amount of notes that's involved with all that. Um, and then it's like, okay, this is one we're going to do because in the process, like for the R and D side of things, your recipes are pretty small. Your everything's written really small because you're not trying to feed hundreds of people at the time. Right. But once you're like sign off on something, you're like, okay, we're going to go do this in standard at that point, you then have to convert up and then make the recipe again and then tweak things because things don't convert the same way. And, and so um, as opposed to like the, the metric where we're able to convert up and everything just made sense. So no, you're absolutely that was right. My experience with it. It, I created something in the the project that um, or in the, the the math course, and I call it the Tower of Power, and it's exactly what you're talking about. 
where all of a sudden you scale this recipe that was for, you know, um, one teaspoon, but we're going to be doing a thousand covers over the weekend for brunch. And now you've got a thousand teaspoons. How do you change it from a thousand teaspoons into a bigger unit, like a pint or a cup? And then you're asking yourself too, like, would you much rather pay somebody unless you're hazing them to measure a thousand teaspoons or would you rather have them scoop, you know, uh, one plus change on a cord. But even when you do scoop it, like you're saying, the accuracy is not margin of error. Oh, is greatly increased when you do it that way. And then you're pivoting even more once you make that batch of a thousand and still finding yourself, uh, adjusting that white pepper or whatever that's going on. Um, so it's, it's, you're right on and spot on with everything that's, that we're speaking, you know? Um, and that really is interesting that both you and me are talking about that because I wonder if we did change what we do in the United States to a metric majority wise and, you know, that's the other dynamic that's a little bit interesting is that we have so much kitchen help that comes from other countries. You think the United States would have already, at least for cooking, <laughs> scrapped standard and said, hey, you know what? Let's do metric. And yeah. it still hasn't happened yet, which is really no, interesting. I mean, even in the automotive world, a majority of that stuff is metric. Oh, yeah. Because cars get shipped all over the world, right? Yeah. So, I mean, cooking is, last time I checked, happens all over the world. You know, why does everything we have to do happen in, in the standard system? So, oh, man, we could beat this dead horse for a while, though. Easily. Easily. So, <clears throat> let me ask you this. Favorite cookbook or cookbook that influenced you the most? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, there was a book that I got from m- one of my mentors. I did my internship with uh, Chef Stephen Jilliba. Um, he's a big, in size, he's a big man. Uh, but like, yeah, I think before he retired, he was president of Unilever or something. Like, dude had done everything from... You know, I worked there when the Bulls were winning their sixth championship and they would come and golf at the club on when it was closed on Monday. And I lived above the pool and I'd look my head out and just be enamored and be like, wow, this is so crazy. But I remember going in and he was in the top five country clubs. And if you know anything about Chicago, there's a gazillion country clubs up there. And uh, no doubt this guy's skill, like we were in the top three. But every day I would have to go into work and he had six huge size, full sized walk-ins, like you could length of a semi almost underneath this country club, exquisite layout, just the most best of the best of everything. And uh, he would take me into the walk-in number one, which was all the scraps. And then he was like, you're going to be on entrementier station, which is sides and you have to call tickets and time up everything to come up at once. And, uh, he would give me one hour to go in and look at what this is IE basically a mystery basket at that time. We never heard that. So obviously food network and stuff now, but I was, uh, I was about 18 years old and I go down there every day and I make a list of all the 
um, uh, produce and grains and stuff that were in this room. I couldn't use anything else. And then I would have to go back and I would have to research uh, two different Escoffier recipes for whatever the vegetables. And I'd have to come up with four vegetables, four grains, four different types of potatoes, two potato du jours. This is all in like two hours. Of course, at 18, I'm crashing and burning terribly. And, you know, I remember one day I tried to do some kind of braised cabbage and it tasted like my cat's rear end. And he told me it tasted worse than my cat's rear end. He was not going to hold back. And that's what made me, you know, take criticism, which I teach my students all the time. It's easy to have somebody sit there and can, you know, congratulate you on a great dish. But what happens when you have a Karen or a Ken out in your dining room that's sitting there drilling you saying that this is one step above dog food and um, they're going to tell you how it is. And long story short, he gave me an Escoffier cookbook and, um, after that day with the cabbage, he gave me this book and it was called culinary artistry. And it's uh, a paperback book. It's probably only a couple hundred pages. I can't remember the author's name. It might be Ruleman. I doubt it is. No, I think it's Karen page. And uh, yes, it's Karen page. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fantastic book. Yep. So you can open it up and you can look for cabbage and it'll live you a list of like all the different flavors and herbs and seasonality that would be good with cabbage. And then there would be this little column that'd be like things not to use with cabbage. And that uh-huh. helped me start to build my flavor profiles and what things worked good. Because I remember when I was a student or I was going to school, of course I could follow somebody else's recipe. But if somebody said, hey man, I want you to go create this, you know, I knew chicken was good. And, you know, outside of that, I didn't know about seasonality really that much yet. And then I didn't know about within that season, things that might work well together, you know, and that book to me was just the Pandora's box to wrapping my head around things, having a second set of eyes to let me know I wasn't going to walk in and serve some cabbage the next day that was a level above or below actually he told me one day it was below <laughs> cat food oh my god the stories this guy used to do to me man like they did everything that they possibly could to try to get me to either Thank have you. a bad attitude or break and i wouldn't he'd walk by the first three weeks i remember four weeks i was there I was down in the basement and he'd bring out a 50 pound bag of carrots, a 50 pound bag of onions, a 50 pound bag of celery and say, all right, fine Brunois cut. When you finish that, you can go home. And it wasn't that nicely said to me either. He'd come by in a couple hours, run his hands through it, look at me, say it was dog garbage. I don't know if this is an edited show, but I'll keep it PC and uh, would bring a stock pot up and swipe all of my work into it and look at me and say, start over. And he was waiting for me to go, "Ah," or are you kidding me? You know, or one of these things like getting a reaction. And I just look at him and say, yes, chef, you come out and bring another bag of carrots. And, you know, obviously when my shift was done, you know, he'd kick me out anyways, but he was testing my limits a lot of the time. And I tell you, when I stayed an extra three months after my internship, because it hit summer at my school. When I went back, man, I wasn't just separating the the cooks from the chefs, but 
you know, had that finite focus that I could, if I needed to separate someone's head from their shoulders in a work environment, not physically or fighting or anything like that. Like you just get that confidence and man, I I owe everything to, to chef Jilliba, man, still to this day. He, he, if it wasn't for him, man, I wouldn't be even a sliver of the culinarian I am today. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. The some of the old world chefs that the two of us kind of had to grow up with. And I say had to. It was, it was a great thing. You know, we didn't have to. We 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 were actually privileged to do that, right? Yeah. But in today's world, it's some of these kids out there. Some of them are probably going to listen to this show. I'm sorry, but. Man, I, you know, that chef you worked with was probably would have a lawsuit right now would be unemployed because of people bitching about, oh, he said this to me or I felt uncomfortable. It was a hostile work environment. It's like, stop bitching and do the work. Yeah. And that's where our profession is hitting a juxtaposition or a crossroads, in my opinion. You know, everybody wants to eat and everybody wants to go out, but nobody now wants to work in that environment. And is it to say that it's the environment or the chef or the student? And depends on the situation you're in. It could be any three of them. You could have a very uh, modernized, non-yelling chef that treats people the way that, you know, wants to be treated and addresses everybody, but you'll still get, you know, employees today that just won't work hard. And then it's like, you know, it's up to us to, to be able to try to coach and build incentives for people. Um, and what I teach in my class a lot is sometimes it's aces in your places. Maybe this person isn't set to be in the back of the house. Maybe they'd be better in the front. Maybe they'd be better off uh, in catering, maybe they'd be better off not hearing a ticket machine. And with us being so short on employees, it's more important than ever of trying to read people's strengths, but also when you're interviewing them too, if you're a guy listening to this and, you know, you're finding that you have people complaining about you all the time and how you handle your, your kitchen or run your operation, then maybe at your interview process, you need to uh, communicate that a bit more. Because obviously there's something in the rub uh, that's not panning out. And we all know that, you know, anytime somebody quits or, or you fire them, that's costing you overtime or um, turnover money and it gets expensive. So it's like we're trapped in this time capsule of old school and new school. And, um, you know, I, I always try to teach my students here that, you know, what do you do when you've asked somebody twice nicely to, uh, to do something that they're not, and the employee's still not doing it. I just tell them this, I go, I'm so at a point now where I'm not even going to tax my emotions. I'm just going to hit you where it counts as an employee. If I've got to tell you something more than once and you're not going to do it, I'm going to hit you where it counts. And that's in your wallet. Money talks, baloney walks. And at that point, they're like, well, wait, what am, what am I, how am I supposed to pay my bills? Hey, you know what? That's a wipey problem. That's a your problem. We can talk before or after the shift, but not right now. You should have thought about that after I asked you to do it the first time. There's nothing in my tone that's wrong, you know? And yeah. it just 
seems I like struggle with that. <laughs> oh, me too. But I, once I figured out that money was the unicorn in all of this, it got a lot easier for me because I didn't have yeah. to blow my top. And it also sent it the first time I did it in the kitchen, it sent a shockwave through where, you know what, this guy's not messing around. He's very fair. He's nice. He's organized. We have a good time. But if you don't do what he says, he's going to hit you right where it counts. And that's where he's going to tell you to punch out and go home. Well, who's going to do my position? Move over, kiddo. The bull in the China shop's coming back online out of retirement. Well, who's going to run Expo? Hey, GM, I need you. Paid you up here. Or I just start developing and cross-training somebody else to come out and catch food if that's the case. But I'm not going to sit there and play hostage, you know? And I think that's that balance between are we babying our employees too much? Are we not communicating our expectations enough? And then how do you handle it when a situation arises? And that's a lot of stuff we don't find in any textbook and uh, I'm glad you have a podcast like this because we can share these nuggets of food for thought with these guys because they're going to need it. You know, you want to get someone's attention, hit their money, hit their livelihood. I'm yep. never hostage. No. Here's a nugget yeah. I haven't shared yet. Um, so everybody knows the term FIFO, right? What FIFA yeah. or FIFO, right? Yeah. Not soccer. First FIFO. in, first out. So what yeah, is right? FIFA? First in, first out, right? Okay. Yep. Well, just to let you know, this isn't a PG Joe show. Um, okay. <laughs> and so FIFO to me is not first in, first out. I tell someone FIFO, I'm not telling them to go rotate the walk-in. I'm telling them to figure it the fuck out. Nice. You know, hey, you know, what am I supposed to do? FIFO. You know, figure it the fuck out, man. I mean, that's what cooking is in a lot of ways, right? It's It's problem solving. It's we all know where we need to be. But, you know, it's if you need someone to hold your hand all the way through, right, I, I'm putting you in a position because I trust you, right? I trust you to make the right decisions, do what you need to do. If you have to come to me every time there's a problem, I'll find somebody else. Yeah. So, and you know, move you, hey, move you trust to yourself else. and figure it Yeah, figure it the fuck out, man. Most That's of the time they come to stuff, it's like it really wasn't that hard of a question. It's like they just need to learn to trust themselves a little bit. It's, you know, so it's FIFO. I love that. I think that's a new tattoo yeah. in my future. And it's not, again, <laughs> a rotating product. It's figure it the fuck out for sure. And, you know, I, I tell my students this. It's not a mistake if you can learn from it. Okay. Now, again, oh, man. piggybacking on this. You know, you don't want to have any tradition or like any issues. And I also, to piggyback on that statement, I tell them, you know, if it's expensive, ask for a demo. And if they look sure. at you stupid or crazy, now if it's, you know, large dice and an onion and you've been doing it for, you know, 20 days or it's just understood, maybe that's not the best thing to be asking. But I also teach them that, you know, Chefs are very particular, a.k.a. they're egomaniacs. Anytime I've staged or worked for free to go absorb uh, and learn in somebody else's kitchen, there's a million different ways I can cut an onion. But if I take one piece over and I say, chef, is this okay for the, the dice on the onions? And he goes, yes. You know, or he looks at me like, are you serious right now? You're even asking me about an onion? You know? I'll still take the grunt of it because 
at the end of the day, there's a million ways. I job when I work or when I was under somebody was to make that person happy. But I'm agreeing with you also, chef, where you don't want to be sitting there going every three seconds up to somebody and say, is this fine? Is this fine? Is this fine? You know, um, it's that balance between not messing up somebody's expensive ingredients. Like say you've got some wild prawns or, uh, you know, something you've, you, you, you've never cleaned before. Absolutely ask for a demo, but once that demo is done, do your stuff. And then obviously, wrap label and date and FIFO it, but not, that's the first in first out, not figure it the fuck out, um, FIFO. And then, you know, you sanitize your board and you keep going. But like a lot of these yep. little, these fundamental steps of thinking, and that's the other big thing, uh, I've really absorbed in education is it's not so much learning the technique. It's learning how to think like a chef. And like you said just a few moments ago, it's not about making uh, the perfect recipe. To be honest, a good chef is to be able to take a completely foobard or fucked up beyond any recognition of a product and be able to not serve something that you wouldn't serve to your mom, but be able to fix it. And man, that's a big dynamic. Um, and the more you do something, this is the other thing that I get a lot with culinary kids. I'm just dumping all my nuggets here, uh, at the end, but no, this is great. You know, yeah. they, they say that it takes 10,000 touches to master something. I haven't cooked a chicken 10,000 times. I don't think I've eaten 10,000 chicken motherfucking nuggets. And that's not even real chicken. It's pink slime for those that don't know, but you know, Anybody that walks in a kitchen, whether you're going to school, whether you're ACF certified, whether you're nobody and you just love the passion of cooking, don't sit there and think that you're going to be able to be a master one time of touching something. Like the Asian over in the Far East, the mentality is, you know, give me the most basic thing, simplest thing, and let me try to reproduce it a million times perfectly. Whereas the Western culture is, let's build it once. Ah, eh, it looks okay. We're done here. Now let's give everybody a ribbon and let's move on. And it's like, no, dude, every single day the rent is due. You have to go in. If it took you five minutes yesterday to cut your carrots, small dice, quarter inch by quarter inch by quarter inch. Today, let's go for four and a half minutes. Like the discipline mentality of challenging yourself and not just working for a paycheck is the biggest pivot in teaching these students, I feel like, and how to think like a chef, not how to be a chef, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I mean, I get um, that, right? You're either you know, going I, I in every day for gains or you're going in every day just to blend in and get paid for an eight-hour shift. And let's face it, if you're going to go in, life's short and you know, anything you're going to do in this life, whether it's a mechanic, whether you're, you know, a male gigolo or you're a chef, it doesn't matter. I might have been a male gigolo in college, by the way, but that's a different story for another podcast. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of wild stories. Chippendales, go figure. Um, you know, these are the, the life's too short in this sense where if you're going to go in and do anything, man, do it right. Yeah. And if you're going in to do something like you lift weights every day, try to be stronger. You know, have that intention. 
Yeah, do it with intention and challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. Man, before you know it, we're all going to be worm food. We're all going to be sitting here wondering and wishing what we could have done more of when we were younger. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that you can teach a man how to fish or you can give a man a fish kind of thing. And then there's that whole other dynamic at the end of it, which is how to, how to think like a fish, I guess, if that makes any sense. Um, not being the fisher, not giving someone a fish, but thinking like a fish. And that's kind of like cooking, if that makes any sense to anybody at home. But, you know, uh, self-discipline, man, is and discipline is always just this word where everyone feels like, oh, no, it's a negative thing. No, discipline's good. It's not always the most fun because it doesn't mean you just do whatever you want to do and how much you want to do it. But if you do discipline right, man, it'll pay you exponentially for the rest of your life. You know, you reap what you sow. Never once in my career have I not worked my ass off and it didn't pay off. I might have not ended up where I wanted to end up initially, but sometimes I ended up even better of a place than I initially thought. And that was all due to discipline and challenging myself every single day when I walked in a kitchen. The most mundane tasks, having the discipline to challenge yourself and say, you know what, I'm going to go ham on these carrots today. I don't feel like it today, but you know what? Rent's due. I got to do it. And you either get that ingrained in your body or you don't. And let's face it, in life, if you're not giving 100%, you might want to go think about this podcast today and go look at yourself in the mirror and figure out what it is you really want to do. Because whatever you're going to do in this life, it's going to take 100%. You're going to feel better at the end of the day. People are going to respect you more. You know, it's a win-win. But going in and just being a sack of wet marbles or beans or whatever, that's not going to win or benefit you anything. No, no, it's not. And and honestly, so my last question I've got here for you, it, sure. I, I think we've been touching on it for quite a bit now, um, mm-hmm. really almost the entire podcast was what word of advice would you have for a new cake, a new cook? One of your kids that just graduated is going into a new kitchen. And I think we've we've kind of went through and, and covered quite a bit about that. But so the, I want to follow up with this question for you. Sure. You t- we're talking about discipline and just coming in and getting it done, right? How many times did you go into that kitchen or you go to your chef and say, hey, you know what? I knocked out that carrots, that bag of carrots in, in half an hour. They were all perfect. And um, but if you pay me more today, I'll do it faster. How many times did you say, well, if you pay me more, I'll do it faster? None, right? Zero. Yeah. So that's that's the attitude. Yeah. Well, but you know what's sad? The amount of people that came to me and said that. And the amount of times, the blank look of just, and the things going through my head that I knew were completely HR inappropriate. That would have got me fired first. Or I was just in shock and disbelief. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? At that point, you may have been at the top of my list. 
you just you're not even on the list anymore. You're pretty much uh, you could say this, however, or think about this, however, statements like that make you a prostitute. You're not an artist anymore. You're whoring yourself out for more money. And how I always used to comprehend or uh, counter those kind of, of comments, I haven't heard any from my students here, but I've heard that, you know, working in different um, establishments throughout my career. And, you know, my first thing to take me because I have a mind and a fire and a passion like any chef does. And at first, when you hear that, you're insulted. So for me to turn that trigger off, and we're all, you know, uh, responsible for our own triggers. That's the last five years of therapy, which, by the way, if you have to go to therapy and everybody does, it doesn't make you less of a person. It's probably no. the best thing you can do. And it's made me a better person because uh, you never stop learning, you never stop growing, and you always want to be a better person. And then, you know, obviously, when you get older and you have a family, which I recently do. I'm blessed to have a, a beautiful new wife of, I think we're in our third year now. She'll probably slap me when I get home for not knowing, but, um, and I, I I've got a wonderful kiddo now and you, once those things, elements enter into your life, it should influence you and motivate you to want to be even a better person and provide more and to do more. So when those triggers would happen where somebody was like, yeah, you can pay me more. And I'm just looking at you like you go fuck yourself. No, but I'll sit there and draw it back and I'll say, Hey, you know what you want to make more? That's great. Let's start when you can learn every single position and run it, open it, close it perfectly on a Saturday night, not have any comps off of your station. I will give you 50 cents for every station that you can learn. And most of my kitchens had six, seven stations do the math. Now, when somebody calls off, I can cross train my line. I can sit there, but I'm not going to sit there and have somebody on a task that they're already doing, sit there and try to play Bob Barker, Wheel of Fortune or any other game show of, of trying to hold me hostage or dictate that you can get more out of me if you pay me more. No, that's not a good tone. Let's go with how about you start learning other stuff other than this carrot and then we can start to look at compensation. And I mean, you know, you want people to stick around. I highly encourage anybody that's got line cooks to keep them hungry and keep them focused. Next thing you know, on Mondays and Tuesdays, you're looking in your line and these two guys are flipped and they know as soon as that it starts to hit balls of the wall rush time, you guys should flip back, get through the rush. Or if you think you can do it, great, but the customer is not going to suffer and this isn't pay training. So again, be responsible about it. But, uh, you know, that's, that's a great point, man. Uh, the number of people that sit there and try to negotiate in a shitty light like that is just exactly like you say, you're going to go from being in the top of the tier to the bottom of the tier. And yeah. you're probably I never going to go very far in your career. You know, there's a no, way about going man. for asking for more money, not doing it like that shitty way that most people think that you know no those are the people i guarantee you they're they're the ones asking themselves why are they still just a cook why are they still only making whatever an hour you know everybody else is passing them up and then they turn themselves into the victim of it all or the 55 year old chef that's bitter because he never got an exec chef position yeah go go fucking look in a mirror man like 
Yeah. You want to know and wonder why you're not going into management. Like one thing, if you don't want the extra responsibility and you like your job and I've met lots of guys that just like being the number one to the big guy, that's cool. But if you're bitter and still working in the same position and the same job and all these people are getting promoted from underneath you over you. Yeah. It's time for a reality check. Yeah. There's something way more going on. Well, fantastic. Um, Jeff, we've kind of gone a little bit long here. We've taken up quite a bit of your time, and uh, I really, really appreciate this. We'll definitely have to do some kind of follow-up. And thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Pressure Cooker. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you on how we're doing. And lastly, if you'd like to be on the show, go to InsideThePressureCooker.com and fill out the form. It'll tell me a little bit about you, some of your story, and how it applies to the show. We'd love to hear from you and love to have you on the show.